The Incomparable Podcast, Episode 112, October 2012. This is The Incomparable! Da-da-da, da-da-da. Sorry. <laughs> Our first contestant, <laughs> the master of phrasing. Wait, that's the people's court, I'm sorry. The answer as a question. Two-time Jeopardy champion and reigning Jeopardy champion in this corner. No, wait a second. That's a boxing metaphor. It's Glenn Fleischman. Glenn, yay! Hey, thank you, thank you. I'm still in position one on stage as... You're in a state of grace. We speak this moment. As reigning Jeopardy champion. That's why mm-hmm. we have you on The Incomparable. Also joining me, I'm your host, Jason Snell, uh, in this special game show episode of The Incomparable. Not the kind where we do a game show. We already did that one, where we talk about game shows. Uh, our next contestant from New England. You know him, you love him. Andy Anatko, come on down! <laughs> Thank you, thank you, Jason. Can I just say hello to my my wife uh, Edna, uh, my sons uh, Dinkley and and Fortward, uh, and uh, and uh, Kingston. If you're still up, da- Daddy says good night. You should be going to bed now. <laughs> I'm really excited about playing the game, Jason. <laughs> and in the center square, he's flamboyant but lovable. It's Steve Lutz. Hello, hello. <laughs> I'm trying to decide whether I'm the uh, Whoopi Goldberg Center Square or the oh, or Alan Ludden. Paul you're Lind. Paul Lind. You're Paul Lind, baby. Paul Lind. Uh, Paul Lind. Paul, Paul Lind all the way. Boy, it's, that's, there really is no good choice there, is there? No, no. no. Not Tony right. Fields Brazier. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe I didn't start the show by saying his podcast was so boring, they once did a show about blank. Get I ready disagree. to match the nerds. So, Glenn, I mean, geez, this is all about the fact <laughs> that Glenn was on Jeopardy. And he this won. Is, uh, it's a little crazy. It's a little crazy. Ah! Twice! The first one was a, was a fluke. Uh, I'm still in a state of shock. So you may recall that Jeopardy tapes in advance. So I've had to keep this quiet for like 10 weeks. How did you manage that? That's crazy. It's okay because the incomparable also tapes in advance, and we've been keeping this podcast episode on ice for about ten weeks. <laughs> Don't so. tell anyone. Oh, the magic of radio. Yeah. Podcast radio has now been destroyed forever. Thank yeah. you. And and the magic of Jeopardy, because now I know it's, it's not I thought it was broadcast live. <laughs> it's um it's actually now here's an interesting thing. So the way Jeopardy is shot, so uh they actually shoot it as a live show. It's essentially shot live and live to tape as they say i think yeah if there's a problem they stop it and they they edit out ums they edit out little bits and pieces here to fit it into the allotted length but i i hadn't thought of that aspect of it because the gameplay goes and there's all this law about game shows because, because after the, the quiz, quiz show scandals, scandals yeah. yeah and that's still i mean i cannot tell you how many pieces of paper i signed before going on the show uh, there's an hour and a half briefing in the morning both you know each day you hear it because a new crop of people comes through and uh, uh, there's just um, – there's an enormous amount that still harkens back to that corruption. And the game show industry today is still trying to be as scrupulously fair and is, is federally required to be as scrupulously fair as they were in the wake of that. And there's so much and some of these in- incredibly strange small things even um, that that still are trying to make sure that people feel these games aren't fixed, that what happens is real. And when you have something that happens like – 
Ken Jennings winning 74 episodes in a row a few years ago on Jeopardy, people wonder, you know, is it a setup or whatever? And it's like, and, and I can tell you from the inside, they take it all extremely seriously and they do everything in their power to make sure it's a level playing field uh, and have outside compliance people there as well watching to make sure that nothing funny is going on. Well, I always have that disclaimer that says portions of this program not affecting the outcome have been edited. So they want to keep as light a touch on it as possible. <laughs> So I'll get all the heavy breathing. Yeah, yeah. Were there breathing issues, Glenn? They have great sound guys on the show. Let me tell you that. <laughs> I'll I'll throw some numbers at you. So here's this, some fascinating things about. I mean, so Jeopardy, 29th season. It's uh, in currently. It has taped 6,500 episodes, which is just staggering. They shoot for 47 weeks of production a year. A hundred thousand people audition through the online screening every year now. Now they switch to online screening. They get uh, three to four thousand people in in person to audition them in cities all over this fair land of ours, and then they pick about four hundred people who actually come in. And not all of those people necessarily get on the air. If you have a long run like Ken Jennings, that knocks people out who would be rotating in his place. So you could actually have you know two hundred and fifty or three hundred people if there's a lot of streaks of winners. So it's this massive, massive enterprise to find a particular type of person, and then they only take a subset of that particular type of person they find. Because they can't take everybody. And you personally, so far, have crushed the dreams of... Four people. Four people. Yeah, I know. It's pretty good. Your history's worst monster, man. Include Well, well, I guess technically you, you overthrew a reigning champion, so that wasn't so bad. Oh, no, crushed- wait, no, actually, it's that a little secret. I, I was very lucky. The person who beat... So on Wednesday night of this week, uh, the woman who was the seven-time champion was beaten by someone else who was in my group. Uh, and then I beat the person who beat her. So technically, I only overthrew. She, I, I beat a, I beat a one-time champion. All right, that's good. So you d- really only crushed three people's dreams. Exactly. <laughs> it's really not quite as much as I would have hoped, but you know, there's still time. That's, yeah, yeah. You, you know, you got. You, you could keep on going. You could be Ken Jennings. You could crush the dreams of thousands more. At this moment, week. it's a Schrodinger's game show cat box. You never know. Mm, you still haven't still haven't beaten Deep Blue. <laughs> that's right. He's still out there. Me. What is shall I compare thee to a summer's day? I don't recall Schrodinger's cat box. I recall <laughs> well, the box. Well, what happens is you, you when you look at you, you're uncertain whether there's poo under the surface. Yeah, or something? until you, until you look inside, it's unclear whether there's poo in the box. Both do need to and not change the cat box. <laughs> That's an excellent excellent yeah. point. Yeah. yeah. Wow. How did we get here? So, so Glenn, it's strange that we are acting as if we haven't seen this episode. But again, we tape the incomparable so far in advance that we haven't actually seen these episodes. So <laughs> tell us about the experience. Uh, you, you said, you know, you, you managed somehow to squeak through and be, be chosen. There are many other people who qualify for Jeopardy and aren't chosen, Andy. Andy. I, 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 I was Jeff offered – they said that it would break too many hearts. That they don't want to have another Ken Jennings <laughs> thing going on. It killed their ratings. Have the same guy week in, week out. They just gave me a lump sum check of three hundred thousand dollars to go away and pretend as though this audition never happened. To don't not don't ruin the show. Have you deposited the check yet, though? No. Oh. No, I, I, actually, I actually got them. I actually got that money in tires. So <laughs> just to, just to make sure that it was untraceable. That's good. And turtle wax. And turtle wax. I'm, yeah. pretty, I'm pretty set for the next ninety winners here in New England. Yeah, so I'm that's good. good. Full of Advil. Yeah, well, so the the deal is I had dinner with a friend when I was in Los Angeles, and she said, Jeopardy is a reality show. And I said, oh, "What? no, it's oh, – oh, it is a reality show. It's a very weird kind of reality show, but it is. It's – you know, it's – as opposed to auditioning people 
you know, if you do Survivor or The Great Race or all of these other the Amazing Race, are, but amazing, the, yeah, see, they, must be, uh, they, they may must be giants. They must be giants. Uh, <laughs> the cooking show, the big stitching show, and Project Runway, and things you like see, that. He wins on this one show, and he's already being condescending to uh, other yeah. people on other game shows. It's sickening That's what this money has done to you, Glenn. <laughs> two time, two time champ. What is the great race, Alex? <laughs> Ooh, sorry. <laughs> I didn't answer any TV questions. Let me tell you that. What is desultory? This unlicensed knockoff ran in Ecuador for two seasons before <laughs> being shut down. So, uh, so it is a reality show. It is they are they are all the reality shows that try to heighten back. Like essentially, most reality shows are looking at turmoil among personalities, and as tasks of some kind are completed, and tasks are presented, and they're supposed to stress people out. The same thing, Jeopardy, is actually that. Which I never thought of that way. Is I thought of it as a competition and yes there are other competitors but it's really how fast am i how quick am i how agile am i to make things happen but in fact you know you are playing against other people it's not a uh, not an isolation and you spend um they tape typically uh two days a week and they tape five shows a day so there is an endurance contest aspect to it too you have to you know be ready to go uh at any moment because they pick you randomly from a stack unless you unless you win in return you don't know that you're going to play the next game or not um, you could be kept over for another day. You might have to come back in two weeks, depending on how it goes. So you're sort of in that state of anticipation and adrenaline rush and caffeine and everything else. And you're huddled with your fellow contestants. And here's something I never thought about before I got on the show is we do all the rehearsal in the morning. They go through. We can talk more about details later. But, they, you know, they we introduce us. They give this huge briefing. We do rehearsal uh, with all the actual gear. They run through stuff. And then. You go out there, you, all the contestants are kept together at all times because of the game show laws, so we don't can't go off and collude or whatever. There's always a staffer in the room with us who only deals with the contestants. There's a wall between them and the writers, the people who know answers. Plus there's a chance you might hit each other over the head with a folding chair, and you don't want to miss that. It's true. Right. And, you know, if they only ran cameras backstage, they would see how boring and polite we are. But so you start out with, I think it's about 14 people and the returning champion. And we're sitting around talking, get to know each other, you're drinking coffee, laughing, comparing notes and, you know, getting the briefing, whatever. It's all fun and games. You go out there, you watch, you rehearse, you sit down in the audience. We're in these separate rows. We're not supposed to, if there's family members there, you can't even wave. I didn't, didn't have anybody there. You can't wave or talk to anybody you're not supposed to even make eye contact with family members again to keep everything on the up and up and then the first game plays and in my case this would have been a monday of the week that we're in now uh the returning champion she came went out and completely blood bath slaughtered these two perfectly nice guys she is great fantastic player uh and um and they were smart guys they just got completely destroyed and then they're gone they can't be with us they're not contestants anymore so they get taken away they can sit in another part of the audience so they can leave and now there's 13 of us. And as the day goes on, there are fewer and fewer people. And you're sitting there going, like, oh, my God. It starts to get a little creepy, and you don't think about that aspect. I never thought about it. I've forgotten that contestants, once they're no longer contestants, they are no longer allowed to be in our little cone of quarantine. So that was a little um, – that part was surprising. We were all kind of, huh. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little like being in Vietnam. You just don't even learn, don't even, uh, learn the names of the new guys because he's probably going to be gone before you know who this is. It's either me or them, baby. Yeah, because either you're gone or if you stay there, you've destroyed them. So it's um, – but there's a lot of mutual support too. Everyone – we you know, generally the attitude was we all wished we could all win because everyone was actually very nice and funny and, and interesting. And, and uh, so you are competing, but I am not that bloodthirsty and um, I was really competing against my own ability to ring in. Well, I, you know, I've always thought that like Survivor and The Amazing Race, those are – 
we call them reality shows, but they're they're not reality shows like the the real world or something like that. They are game. They're I guess they call them the Emmy category is the reality competition program, but it is they're yeah. they're game shows. Survivor, you know, for for all of its kind of manufactured interpersonal drama, it's a game show. It, it's they, there are contests and people are competing and and you know it's funny to think about that that they're not that far off from Jeopardy. And I would imagine that when they pick contestants to be in that random pool, they're also picking. You know, they they you got to qualify by answering these questions in these qualifications to show that you're a worthy contestant. But then at some point, I'd imagine you're also being cast, right? That they're like the people we want to have on the air. Yeah, it's casting. Oh yeah, I mean they're they're testing. The reason they do in person auditions. What, what they told me at one point was they said they used to do these cattle call auditions, and uh, and my good friend Jeff Duncan has gone through a bunch of Jeopardy auditions, and and he and I wound up auditioning this time around at the same time, which was sort of hilarious. You know, they had 21 slots in Seattle. We both got called for the same exact ones like of course and um and so he told me he's been through he started auditioning in college even and uh the the way they used to do it is they'd you'd send a postcard to them or something crazy for even when there was the internet you'd still send them a postcard and they would call people or send a note out like we're going to be in your area come here and take a test or you go to la at certain times and and do it when they only did it in LA. And so they get a room full of people and they said they would hand out the test and you know this rapid fire thing we had to answer really fast. They'd score it and then they'd send almost everybody away. It was this incredible, you know, it was a hecatomb. They just kept you get a hundred people and like one would be left. The culling of the herd. Yeah, it was pretty mm-hmm. so it was brutal from the uh contestant coordinator standpoint too. It was a very inefficient way for them to find people who are, who had both the intellectual ability, the ability to work under time pressure, and who they thought would actually present well on TV. So this new system where they're getting a much larger pool, and they're – they're I mean, I can't tell you how much – the people involved in the show are all – you know, it's a little Stockholm Syndrome, I'm sure, but they're all actually really delightful. <laughs> they didn't whip me that much. No, they're all incredibly delightful people. They really love their job, and they're really fun to hang out with. <laughs> while you're backstage and they make it a really I mean it's a game show it should be fun but they really make it it's clear they all people it reminds me of Macworld Macworld magazine everyone likes to work together except that guy and was this your first (laughs) attempt at getting on the show you just lucked into it it was it was and I think you know I gotta say it's there's a little biography like I you know I I uh, I think I present myself reasonably well, but it's also I had a couple good stories. I've got I don't have a very interesting background, but I had a few good anecdotes about what happened. I'm pretty sure that the 50 question screening test they do when you get there. So the hundred thousand people do online. That's a rapid fire scheduled. You have to like go online at a very specific time. They tell you be ready, have flash working, and whatever that. Hell. And then you, if you pass that, then when they audition you, you get another 50 question test that you write in just answers, no questions, answers the form of questions, thank God. And I'm pretty sure I got 46 or 47 out of 50 right, which was much, much better than I did the online test I thought I'd done horribly on. So I scored well there, so they knew I'd be a good contender. I presented myself reasonably well, and I had a few good, funny stories. The simulation game I did in uh, the audition, I think I did quite well with this. There's a lot of game mechanics. They're watching if you can pick it up really fast because here's the other thing I didn't think about. They're not only – it's not only a reality show or reality competition. They also have to train you for television in about two hours. They get a room full of people, most of whom have never been on TV or anything to do with being on TV, and they train you to present on TV – 
for a 20-something minute segment in two hours. So they have to get people who they believe they can train to do that, who will follow the rules, who won't burst out, won't burst out crying during questions, won't start yelling, <laughs> won't argue with Alex, won't say inappropriate things that make them have to stop. and Curl into a ball, hu- you know, mm-hmm. hunch over their, the microphone. Yeah. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because you'd think out of any average population of relatively intelligent people who can memorize things – that, those would be reasonable reactions from some percentage. All those, you don't have people, there was nobody there with a blush reaction. You know, people have involuntary blush reaction. No one there had involuntary blush reaction, which I'm sure they watch for. And I'm sure the fact that you knew Trebek's mom and his dentist probably didn't hurt. So, Glenn, can you tell me a little bit, walk us through a little bit what the experience was? I mean, you've said a little bit about being in the holding pen with your fellow victims. None, none of whom blush. None of whom none blush. Of whom blush. They're all blush free. They're all. Um, they failed their Voigt camp test, and they're all, all replicants. <laughs> well, he just said they don't blush involuntarily. Maybe they, they voluntarily blush. blush. Volunt- there you go. I was wondering if you were paying huh. attention. They all have voluntary blush control. Well, so what they do is it's um so uh the the process is uh, you know really well thought out because they've got a very tight amount of time. So I think I was saying earlier they tape. Five shows a day, two days a week. Sometimes, depending on what's going on, they'll tape five shows on one day and then tape the next. So they're catching up right now from a summer hiatus where they're showing reruns, where they're they're getting ahead. So they'd already taped a few weeks of shows when I was when I got there. And uh, everyone from out of town winds up staying at the same hotel. It's a few miles away. It's very nice, and they have a group, you know, corporate rate. So you go down in the morning, and there's all these people holding extra clothes, and they ask you to bring a. Uh, Three, like wear an outfit that's ready to go on the air and bring a couple changes of clothes in case you win. And they need to pretend that you're there for another day. Or soil yourself. <laughs> that is not an option. None of these people soil themselves either, I should have to point out. Voluntarily or involuntarily. Neither. <laughs> no. <laughs> you don't do this to get out. So you go down to you know the area where you're waiting. The hotel runs a shuttle and they take everybody over there. And you're seeing all these somewhat nervous people and you all get on a bus together and you're joking around. You go to the studio and they sort of drop you off and this like, wait here. The coordinator will be here. And you're like... Did we just, is this a joke? Is, there, is this a... You're in like a parking lot somewhere? Yeah, you're like right outside a parking lot on the, Sony's, on the Sony lot. You're like, really? And then they come out, they take you in, and then you're with the contestant coordinator for the rest of the time that you're a contestant on the show. And they, uh, there's several people, they're all, if you read, um, I read Ken Jennings' book uh, called Brainiac, which he wrote um, shortly after his experience, and it's a combination of, it's a great, I mean, for this show, for Incomparable, it's a great book because it's a combination of his experience in the show interleaved with really interesting stuff about the history of trivia. Like why do we care about trivia as a category and some very funny stories. He had a lot of some interesting travel for it. It's well-researched. He's a good writer. And uh, uh, so I read Ken's book and I also read uh, Bob Harris, who is a five-time winner in 1995 and then came back for a bunch of tournament of champions uh, shows prisoner of Trebekistan, which is also, it's actually a lovely memoir that's disguised as a book that teaches you how to win at jeopardy. So it's funny. Uh, and so a lot of the people you hear, like Maggie, who's the main coordinator, you hear her name all the time. She's in Ken's book. She's been at the show for 15 years. She is a hoot. She's hilarious. She spent all this time with these people um, who run the show. <clears throat> and you have to be separated from the writers because of the fairness things. So you never talk. You're never alone with anybody who's not a contestant coordinator. You never have access to anybody else who works on the show. Um, and except, you know, the sound people come in, the makeup people and so forth. So you spend a couple hours there's pastries, there's coffee, drinks, and they get do your makeup and they run through all of the legal stuff, all of the parameters of the show, how the game is played, they answer questions, uh, and then you go and do rehearsal. And you go up on stage and it's the Jeopardy stage, the real thing, and they run you through 
the whole process. You get to test the buzzer. You answer questions. Another guy named Glenn acts as Alex and runs through several games for the things. They rotate us through. We sit in the audience and we have some real time working with the system. And then they bring the actual studio audience in about 1030. And then they start to shoot shows and they cycle us through. Glenn, I have a quick go back. As a contestant, do you get full access to the craft services table or do they just cut off a small subset of the items and hand them over to you? It is not full craft services. Oh, I'm sorry. Man, it's just it's a, there's a very nice fruit plate. Very, very nice. And there's a very nice pastry and uh, baked goods plate. But you don't get it. like uh, Alex Trebek's uh, coffee. Leftover cheese. No, they do take us out. To, if you're there, if, you, if you're still in place by lunch, they do take you to the Sony commissary where you may see such celebrities as, uh, I don't know, Seth Alex Trebek or George Clooney. <laughs> Alex doesn't eat there. One one question though, Glenn, do they do they put you on like a data blackout as well? Because if I if I knew that I've got like five hours until I might be called, I'd have like a card with like here are all the state capitals, here are all the presidents, and I'd be at least like looking at this thing or at least like looking things up on my iPhone just to cram last minute short term memory facts into my head. Or do they say, nope, you can't have a phone in here, you can't have papers, you can't have anything? They're not that strict. They do ask you to turn off your cell phones when you get on the lot and not turn them back on until the end of the day, but they don't, there's not a, there's no, they're not very, um, uh, you know, rigorous about that. I mean, they do, I think if they saw people doing something, they'd say something or the phone rang, it would be a problem because that would violate the rules, but they just expect everyone to follow them. You can have a book. I had a, and, but I didn't see anyone doing like flop sweat, flop, flop sweat studying. Like no one was whipping <laughs> out stuff. It's like you're, you're Fate is sealed. You're doomed. You might as well <laughs> just sit there and take it. Either you paid attention in American history class 18 years ago or you didn't. Yeah, yeah, there comes that point in your cramming where you just realize it's a completely lost cause and you just sit back it's, and it's, cry. It's, well, it's, time to, it's time to be the ball. Although I credit um, the Bob Harris book, A Prisoner of Trebekistan, I credit him because I read that book um, uh, several weeks before I was on the show and because I'd heard it had some strategy in it. And it does have a lot of interesting strategy. And I use the strategy and I would argue and I've actually even emailed Bob Harris to tell him this, that I would argue that I only uh, – I only did as well as I did because I read his book for two reasons. One is he explains uh, – well, actually, there's several reasons. I won't go into all of them, but there's several interesting things in the book. One of them is um, that you can deconstruct the clues as they appear on screen to the part that actually matters because the writers, for more complicated things especially, they actually give you the answer and the clue if you read it the right way. Yeah. So that's, you know, I think that's one thing. So I would look at clues and I would, sometimes there'd be tons of words and I would, and he's also, you read the whole clue ahead as fast as you can read. You don't wait for Alex to read it because otherwise you're working only at the speed of his sound, not at the speed of as fast as you can think, which is obvious, but it's easy to get lulled into it. Yeah. A lot of Jeopardy questions or I guess answers uh, in the questions in the form of an answer <laughs> That's right. Um, are, are a, a very small fact connected to the the uh, category followed by a piece of trivia that's irrelevant right so there's a lot of like this belgian entertainer once ate an entire mackerel right and you're like no 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 but the category is people named named jacques and it's a belgian entertainer and there's only one of those guys and it's jacques le maire and it's him and and the and then the and the the fact that he ate a fish does is completely irrelevant to the fact because because you don't need that information nobody cares it's that first bit and that's really all it is is like Belgian entertainer jock done the clues will even be I saw ones that were like and I'm not recalling an exact clue it'd be like uh, the category will be colors and it will be like 
famed for the pers- its persistent immersion in water, this you know nineteenth century fish uh, or the nineteenth century fish of this color uh, refracts through blah blah blah, and you'd be like, it's red, it's red. Like ignore everything with the fact they're really just telling you it's red. Or this yeah. this crimson fish, you know, you'd be like, crimson fish. All I need to say is crimson colors, red. Yeah. So his book sort of details a process by which you deconstruct clues and do it. And I would say several times, there's times when you see something it's and it's a fact. You look at it, the clue comes up, and it's, you know, this American president killed in Ford's Theater. You don't need to right. deconstruct that. It's Lincoln, God darn right. it. Was wearing um, a hat of a certain yeah. brand. No, no. Had recently eaten a 19th century crimson fish. Exactly. Oh, I know that guy. That's, From Belgium. But here's a final Jeopardy <laughs> not from, uh, you know, there's a site called j-archive.com that has every single Clue and answer, every score everyone got, <laughs> every piece of banter that Alex said presented as game boards for the entire history of the show. God, I love the internet. That's what the internet is for right there. Uh, shut-ins are great, aren't they? I now have my idea for my next Big Bang Theory spec, sh- spec script. Sheldon auditions for Jeopardy and starts off by memorizing every answer that's ever oh been posted. Oh, my God. That's perfect. <laughs> People do that. So one of the guys, if you watch uh, the Tournament of Champions in 2011, had this guy named Roger Craig. He won uh, a total of $231,000 over seven days. He won the highest score, a, a dollar amount, I believe, $77,000 in a single day in the 2010 seven day run that he had what he did. And then he came back for tournament champions and he, um, he did, uh, extremely well. I don't think he won. I don't remember, but he did, uh, anyway, he did very well. He won the, uh, no, he did win the tournament in 2011. I'm sorry that year. So here's the thing. What he did is he was a computer scientist, something like this, some background in programming. He took the entire J archive thing. And instead of memorizing the sum total of human knowledge that falls within the parameters of what jeopardy tests on, he took that archive and he tested himself incessantly on only the things that had come up in the show before. And that's how he won. Because there's a lot of knowledge that they, they exhaust entire categories of things. The whole point of the questions on Jeopardy that they ask the clues is people at home have to not feel stupid when they don't get it. Right. That is the clue. That is the key to Jeopardy is they need people smart enough, fast enough, and poised enough <laughs> to play the game. Two or three people on stage at a time will know the answer to any given question. That is, a, that is true. And I saw it again and again. But what they need to do is have clues that when someone doesn't get it, they don't go, I don't care about Plantagenet politics. What? Is, what? <laughs> they need people. They need things that are common enough that people go, oh, oh yeah, I learned that once. Oh, that's great. Or they know the answer. And if it doesn't play at home that way, it's not a good clue. So the universe of knowledge is not all facts that could be in trivia, bar trivia or something, or obscure trivia contests. Right. It has to be things that people at home aren't embarrassed to not know. Sorry, Charlie. This fish often contains too much mercury. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's perfect. That's perfect. It's stuff like that. Because it's like, hey, I remember that commercial. Yeah. <laughs> I'm joking, but they occasionally do throw something in. Like there was a category called the Plantagenets and all of the questions were like, it wasn't when I played, this was several weeks ago. And I'm watching this going like the writers went temporarily insane. And Alex is looking at it. Everyone's looking at it. And it's like in 1735, the Dauphin of France made this, you know, everyone's like, it was like, you know, it was, there are categories like that that are a little nutty. Yeah. You know, there's the, uh, the, that awkward silence when Alex asked the question and, there's just no answer. And, and, and it's like anybody, any, any, oh. right. And that's not good TV. 
The category was fiction. He says with his slight Alex is the is a Dutch uncle. He's the perfect definition of someone who expresses some amount of positivism, but most of it is it's like slight reproof most of the time. <laughs> I thought a Dutch uncle was something completely different. Yeah. So that was in your that was in your high school. So so Glenn, um, how do they pick the kind of semi ridiculous bits of personal trivia that they that they uh, have during the segment where Alex briefly deigns to chat with the players? You're supposed to fill out – well, you fill out uh, – every stage of this process, you provide information in the form of anecdotes, not in the form of questions. And uh, they're they're asking you – I think at least like six different times they asked me to provide three to five interesting stories of things that had happened to me that I was involved with. And I don't know if I use the same ones every time, but I mean I, I think I had to fill something out even – for the online thing where they're just testing you. And then when the audition happens, they send you something ahead and you're supposed to write it out. And then you get, you know, before you go there, you fill out paperwork and they ask for it. You get there and they review it and they work with you on your story. So they don't ask you to fake it, but they want to have three items from you at any given time. So I had to come up with more while I was there because I won. (laughs) So, uh, and they'll be like, that's not so good. I'm like, this happened to me. And they're like, yeah, it's not going to play that well. So what about, did you ever, what's an embarrassing thing? No, nobody cares that your mailman once knew Isaac Asimov. They nope. don't, you don't, we don't care that you met Hugh Hefner. They're asking you Hesley. for Glenning. They're asking you to do Glenning. That's right. right. I mean, I could not think of a more perfect role for you. I didn't, I didn't Glenn as well as I could have, but I did Glenn pretty so, well. So what, so not that I, because I haven't seen the episodes that have already aired. Uh, what were your, what were your anecdotes that, that Alex actually asked you about? Alex asked me about uh, how I broke the first review iPod unit I was sent before they were released, which was a good one. And then he asked me a very because you know I got an iPod about a month as you probably did too yeah. about a month before. Did they you released. try to update it? No, I put a, a audio jack in, not realizing it was an extra long one, and it broke the device. It like oh. broke the circuit board, and they're like, uh, "We'll send you another one." So it's very nice. <laughs> Very nice. But it's a good story. It's like, yeah, I got one of the first iPods and I broke it. So that's a good story, you know. Right. Our next contestant from San Diego is (laughs) – no, go ahead. And then uh, I talked more generally about – I mentioned something about how I'd rather like – you know, when I write about technology, I'd rather write about things that matter to people. And oddly enough, he picked that one. Alex is um, is an interesting cat. And I've read – now I've read a few books that, you know, from these people who have been on the show a while like Bob Harris or – Ken Jennings, who've been on repeatedly or for long periods, and uh, everyone always wants to know what Alex is like from people who spent that much time, and he's he is a cipher. But you get little bits and pieces. Like Alex, uh, somebody asked in the audience, he answers questions between uh, during commercial, you know, the, the Erzatz commercial breaks we have while they're touching up makeup and doing all that. And he asks the audience you know, that shout out questions, and he's a very personable, nice guy, and very very low key. I mean, someone said, you know, what's the most extreme thing that's happened to you when you got recognized? He's like, extreme thing, extreme thing. He's like. I, I don't think anything extreme has ever happened when someone's <laughs> recognized me. It's like, I'll ask Sajak about it, he said. Um, but like someone asked him about cars. He's like, I'm not really into cars. He's like, I got it. And he mentioned this really normal truck model. He's like, I like it because I can put 16-foot pieces of lumber in it. And then when I go to my house in Laurel – and he's talking about like clearing – he does the George Bush thing. He's like clearing brush. Like he – when he's not taping, he's off in his ranch in Laurel Canyon – working on his yard. I mean, I think that's what he enjoys doing. I don't think he likes technology. He made some comment to somebody. It sounded like grandpa. It was like, yeah, Jimmy, you know, the internet, right? You do some internet stuff. What's it? He asked about about how email worked or something. You know, it's his level of technological involvement is very withdrawn. And I I think that's actually kind of cool. He thinks there are little men inside the the board um, putting up cards with the answers and, 
Uh, so someone asked him, of course, as they always do, I think every taping, someone said, what about SNL? Do you like those? He's like, I love when people make fun of me. I think it's great. It's hilarious. I love Will Ferrell. He was incredibly funny. And, he's, and he, you can tell he's not a um, – Alex, as you've seen by watching the show, he kind of wears his heart in his sleeve a little. When he has disdain for something, he you can hear it. That's not hidden. So he clearly enjoyed it. And he's talking about, oh, it was great. The last time Will was on, they asked me on the show and what a treat that was and whatever. And then he walks away and he turns back and he looks at the audience. He holds up his finger. He says – but I don't like Sean Connery. <laughs> and then he walks to the <laughs> <laughs> Or Sean Connery, I don't like him. Or something like that. I'm like, I can't tell if it was a joke. He's very dry also. I can tell it was a joke or whatever. But he's you know, he's in on it. He knows. He's also Canadian, by the way. Canadian. It's, of course. Canadian spy. Many, many insinuators. <laughs> he actually recollected back to – he. this is the 10th game show Alex Trebek has hosted. Yeah, I was going to say my, my first experience with Alex Trebek was on the fine, high-quality, dice-rolling-based <laughs> series, High Rollers. High Rollers. Yes. When he, when he had the one. big fro, right. When, when he, yeah. he had so much yeah, hair, yeah. He had so much hair that Eugene Levy was playing him on SCTV. That's right. He brought that up. He's like, I've been parodied by two you know, well-known comedians. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, it's funny that we that, that he ends up on a uh, on this show that is considered to, to be you know more challenging and intellectual, and yet I I still can remember that he was the guy who was like, "Are you going to roll those dice again?" I mean, it was it was like one cut below card sharks. You got to pay right? your dues, man. Yeah. You, you don't I just like get thrown sharks. out of Jeopardy. You got to start down there with pressure luck and move your way up. Oh, oh, I got to tell you the most exciting thing. This is actually the most exciting thing. I don't know why this was so exciting. I go in the studio, and who is there? Who is there? Johnny Gilbert is there. Johnny Gilbert. Woo. You know, come on. The, now, come on. The, the, oh, the, the golden, announcer. This the golden is voice Jeopardy. Of Johnny. This is Jeopardy. And he does it every time fresh. That is a fresh. He sits there and they go, they, they go 10. They point to him and he belts that thing out perfectly every time. He's 88 years old. He comes in. He warms up the audience. He talks. He answers questions. He's such. A, he's like this kindly old guy. And then he sits down and that beautiful voice pours out of him. That's like a voice I've heard like Don Pardo's my whole life. And now he's saying your name. That's awesome. From Seattle, Washington. A technology journalist from Seattle, Washington. Wow. The Glenning. So, Glenn, uh, do you watch? Do you watch Jeopardy, or do you just go and take their money? I well, I so my confession is, I watched. I'm sure I watched well over a thousand episodes, and then we gave up cable, and we are in a uh, in satellite. We're in a um, TV shadow from um, Wheeler at the bottom of a hill, and all the TV transmitters are at the top. So it's very hard for us to even get broadcast TV. So I didn't watch it for several years. I auditioned somewhere in there, but I think I watched Jeopardy. We watched it. Got a show was rebooted in 1984, but I watched reruns and the original run with um, Art Fleming. Art Fleming. Oh my gosh, great show! And um, I think Don Pardo was the announcer on that run or something, yep. wasn't he? Yeah. Right. Yes, because I remember because he also did the Weird Al Yankovic video. Yes. Oh, I lost oh, on perfect. Jeopardy. Was all oh, yeah. Art Fleming and Don, Don Pardo? You're a complete loser. Yes. And then I watched. I watched it. You know, from 1984 to probably 2004. Four. I probably watched it earlier more, but later a little less. But I watched a large 
chunk of that 20-year history. So I hadn't watched it that much in the last few years. I picked up some episodes. They do a great job in policing because it's in syndication. You cannot find Jeopardy shows online. And I tried. I tried to find torrents or downloads, and I thought there must be some weird Jeopardy subculture <laughs> that trades episodes. And after the air, is there any value? They don't release DVDs. There must be something. But uh, So what I did is I hooked up an ITV, an EYE TV, and manipulated a DTV antenna enough that I can get the local NBC affiliate, um, which it airs. And I watched uh, a good couple months of it before going on, so I was up to date. So my um, my in-laws watch Jeopardy uh, religiously. They actually have a, a, a DVR uh, season pass for Jeopardy. So they will sometimes have three or four episodes, and then it's like – just a, a a marathon of Jeopardy, where it's like let's watch another one right while we're while we're down there visiting. And I, I every time I see Jeopardy, and I used to watch it regularly, and I always think to myself, "Ho ho, I can answer many of these questions. I should be on Jeopardy." But you know, I think one, there's the reality that I probably shouldn't be on Jeopardy, and two, I haven't ever even attempted to be on it. So I'm I'm fascinated. I know Andy has taken the 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 test, and Glenn managed somehow through a horrible mistake to be actually put on the show. <laughs> I selected the reality very much like an anathem. I selected the reality in which I was on the show. It was yeah. much easier than actually getting on the show. Good job. So, so uh, you know, I, it's fascinating to me because, I, you know, I, I'm one of those people who just sort of sits back and says, yeah, I, I know some of those questions. I Oh, I got that final Jeopardy right. I could be on this show. And, you know, maybe I, I don't know pla- the Plantagenets well enough. Or the vice presidents to be. I, I just I I auditioned only because I really missed taking standardized tests. It had been like I was out of high times, school, yeah. college for like five six years. <laughs> I was like, got to sit in a room with a tiny desk and a piece of paper, and somebody will judge me. Uh, yes, and and in the form of a a, a, a number. I, I give me a number. Judge me in the form of a number. Exactly. This <laughs> is Scantron. <laughs> <laughs> I would say this, though. You know, the other thing I got – another thing I got from the Bob Harris book that I took to heart and absolutely helped me was I did go and memorize stuff. I spent, I would say, 50 to 60 hours from when I got called to – and and confirmed to be on the show to when I was on the first uh, show. I – at least 40, 50 hours. I would – to start with, I spent – Usually almost three hours a night after my normal workload was done, memorizing presidents, potent potables, uh, vice presidents, <laughs> popes, state mottos. Um, they love wars. They especially love the Spanish-American War and the Russo-Japanese War. I don't know why. These come up all the time. Things about them. There was a question. I believe it was a final Jeopardy several weeks ago. It might have been I, – I did a lot of study on J-Archive as well to get a sense of how the flow of the show goes without well, – I could go through like 100 shows on there. So a question was, this war was ended with a treaty signed oh, – oh, yeah. <clears throat> What was it? No, it was this – I saw that episode when I was at my in-laws this, this summer. Was great. What was it? It was, it was a treaty was signed in this city even though it was – or the treaty for this yeah. war was signed in the city of Kittery, Maine even though it went under a different name. And you're like, what in God's name is wrong with you people? <laughs> and the answer was it was the Russo-Japanese War. Yes. The treaty was signed in Kittery. It was called the Treaty of Portsmouth. Yes. It was signed in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. It was named after Portsmouth, New Hampshire. One of the most baffling questions I've ever seen <laughs> on like, Jeopardy. And I don't think anyone got it, but you're like, good. Most of the questions aren't like that. But I did. <clears throat> they like Kaiser Wilhelm. They like Otto well, von doesn't? Bismarck. They who like doesn't? Opera of the 17th and 18th century. Who doesn't? There's like, it's, but it's, that's, you know, who's the audience? Uh, like our show, people in their 70s yeah, like to retirees. watch Jeopardy. <laughs> 
I think the thing was that Kittery was a little bit embarrassed to be involved with that war, so they they used Portsmouth instead. I think Portsmouth is actually like the (laughs) Alan Smithy of the treaty signing locales. All yeah. treaties are signed in Portsmouth, but but there are there are so many recurring themes that you can not you know so that there's a general guidance that they're asking questions people at home could possibly know the answer to or, or kick themselves they didn't but right. they're not ridiculous and the other is there's a small enough universe so I there are many many questions I got correctly I got the correct uh, question for because I had done this initial studying and I I didn't poke other people. I wasn't trying to psych anybody out because I'm not that kind of bastard, but I did ask around a little bit and I'm not sure most people did things and did that kind of memorization. This comes back to me. I watched uh, early seasons of Survivor, not the first season, but a few of those with a bunch of friends. We get together every week and watch it for like three seasons. And after season one, so season one shows up, people don't know what to expect. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. aren't aware they're playing a game, think they're on the real world. And yeah, it's a little one, crazy. So, one person is playing a game and wins easily. After the first season, <laughs> what's the one thing you need to know if you are not just auditioned for? What's the one thing you should go prepared for uh, when you arrive, before you arrive? You need to, to know how to make contest- fire. Yeah, yeah. How many people knew how to make fire in seasons two, three, and four? One person. You need person. to know how to pay your taxes one person. so you don't go to jail. Yeah, well. That was, yeah, that's, 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 that's the most fascinating thing in the world, that thing. But... Richard Hatch. Richard Hatch was actually the uh, he was an answer recently too. In fact, and for that question, was like, I'm sure he was. This early survivor person was an idiot, didn't pay his taxes, and tried to lie. <laughs> um, oh, I'm sorry, that's libel. It's, no, actually, it's not. It's exactly what he did. So it's not libel because he actually did didn't was convicted his, of not paying his taxes. It is a fact. No, no, you're right. It was fundamental. Like, what, what, here's what here's a skill you need to practice. And yet, mind-bogglingly, for the first couple of seasons, people didn't practice the making of fire. And and yet once you got, and this was actually why I stopped, I watched the first probably like eight seasons of Survivor and I loved it. Uh, and, and I loved it not for the spectacle part, but for the gameplay part, the strategy of a very strange game where you have to win individual challenges, but you also have to kind of barter with your, with your, your, your teammates uh, because they can vote you off, but in the end they have to vote you the money. So you can't, you can't be too objectionable in your strategy. Fascinating stuff. But the problem is as it goes along, people learn what they need to do exactly. to perform and then everybody knows it and then and then you're in that I know that you know that I know that you know thing and it's mm-hmm. not very interesting anymore. A lot of shows like how they do you know like uh like the um what's the show was it the one where the guy claimed to be a millionaire what wasn't what was that show called Joe millionaire. Joe millionaire, Joe yeah. millionaire yeah you can do that once apparently they try to do right. it in like France they went to some other country to try to dupe people into it on a different season but you can't but yeah Survivor became a show that lost its um, that lost that I, I like the first, I watched like I say three or four seasons and I was fascinated by how interesting it was how anthropological it was and how clever even though there were some icky people on it there were some also some very interesting and, and interesting people yeah but you're like okay so you're ca- you know you're put on Jeopardy you're cast on Jeopardy hey we're gonna you're gonna be on Jeopardy and if you're out of town they typically give you four or five or even six weeks before your appearance to make sure you can make arrangements. What do you do in that intervening time? Do you say, oh, that's great. I'll just Go remember everything beach. I ever knew in my life. Yeah. yeah. So I'm not criticizing any any other contestants. But in my mind, I'm like, I have the time. I would actually like to win. And I would say that the, my investment of time paid off at like, you know, uh, $800 an hour or something like that. So I'm not, yeah. I'm not unhappy. I well, study. The first thing I do if they told me I was going on Jeopardy would be to memorize the presidents and the state capitals and the state mottos and all of – and vice presidents and the obscure wars – 
the year of the president, they're actually, because they know people will memorize presidents, they now have gotten even more granular. This is one evolution of the show is they do stuff about like in 1751 or 1788, blah, blah, blah. So they had, I believe was the final Jeopardy last year saw in the archives. It was between 18, uh, between uh, uh, 1841 and 1851. There were, uh, this was the number of presidents who were in office and you're like, oh my God. And the answer, does anyone know the answer? 1741 to, or 1841 rather, to 1851. How many presidents were in office during that period of time? Do, 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 six. Do, do. What is six? You're right. Six is correct. That's very good. You should be on Jeopardy. That was Damn. a complete guess. Let's. That's, <laughs> did not crazy. It's under <laughs> six, yeah. Um, if it's for if it's uh, Jeopardy and not Double Jeopardy, then you would yeah. be allowed to rephrase like that. So I always yeah, answer but, six. It's a condition I've got. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do every question was Jeopardy that time. So you were prepared, and 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 that's good. Now, Andy, uh, I know you as I mean, actually many people I know are a big fan of another reality competition show, which is The Amazing Race. And I, I think one of the things that reasons that The Amazing Race holds up better than Survivor now, and I say that that pains me to say that because I've always liked The Amazing Race, but I really really loved Survivor for a long time. But Survivor got worn out, like I said, because of this whole strategy overload. And The Amazing Race, you know, there isn't that much and they've tried a little bit but there isn't that much of a of a, a, a an inter interpersonal intercontestant gameplay they are more focused yeah. in in jeopardy terms on pressing the button and knowing the answer not like you know putting a banana peel on the you know on the person next to them so that they slip and fall and alex laughs at them right i mean it's much more straightforward yeah. than that and i think that's why it's replayable in a way that survivor isn't yeah, there, there's no there. There are two there are two elements, and this is I'll I'll help. There are two elements that make it great, and one of them is that you. What I don't like about Survivor is that starting with season three, pretty much by episode three, you know, okay, there are six people that are in Team Boo Boo. The other one is on right. On they make Club the alliances. Maja. They have to, yeah. And so it's like so for the next ten You're episodes, just counting it's down just alliances. going to be yeah. exactly until we get down to three, and that, that's just boring. Yeah. Whereas on Amazing Race, there is no way to form al- effective alliances. There are specific rules that says that you can't if 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 there are eight back if there are eight tools set up for this challenge, you can't touch anybody else's stack or tools, or, or else you'll get you'll get eliminated. The only the only season that was ever really awful was when they actually had a. Uh, one of the teams from Survivor, uh, Bo- Johnny Boston or Boston, Boston Rob, whatever, and so Boston Rob, and so that's, that was the only time that any team ever managed to successfully like interfere with another team. But 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 the other but the other thing is that the producers can't do it, really can't control the outcome at all, right? Because even if oh, I, I, my fav- I, I always I always mention this because it is the signature of why this is such a great show. They started off with uh, the first; it was the first season after nine eleven, and you're really imagine that. Oh my God, this is a this is a show that's all about going from airport to airport to airport, and now they have to do it with increased security. How is this going to going to work? And you could tell that the producers like, you know what? We're going to have two teams of uh, two teams of Muslim contestants. One of which is oh, I'm, 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 to, I'm totally I'm totally ignorant of, of of how people observe that faith, but there are some people who are for lack of a better word like uh, more devout and so they 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 wear the clothing you're supposed to wear they have the facial hair you're supposed to wear they pray at the times you're supposed to pray and one of these teams was one of these teams that are going to have to go through the world in a time when muslims in muslims are probably going to be the most scrutinized and the most abused people in any uh, in any non-muslim country and the first episode both of those teams got eliminated and so that's what tells you that 
It's okay for the producers <laughs> oh to God. think they're going to set something up, but all that has to happen is for someone to get a cab where the cab driver does not know how to get to the place that that person has asked for, or someone leaves their passport behind, or someone for someone decides, oh, I'll just leave my shoes here. I'm sure that the producers will like collect it for me. Then the producers don't collect them; they have to do the rest of the thing barefoot. It's it, that, that's why it's it's. I don't think I don't think Survivor is bad as Big Brother, but haven't in in recent years they've done things like, oh, well, you were voted off, but you found the secret idol. That you followed the clue that only you had access to. I will say this about Survivor is they, they because they are subject to some, some of the same rules as Jeopardy, they have to set these these uh, twists in advance. And that's, again, part of the problem is that they say, well, what if there was a, an immunity idol and, and there was a, you know, and, and it, 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 you do it to make things, the storyline v- varied from season to season, but it actually isn't that much. It sort of cheapens it and, and. Uh, the variation in the Amazing Race is just the randomness of the act, and because that show is structured that way, it you never know what's going to happen. That's what got to be the problem with Survivor for me. I think I only got through maybe three or four series of that as well, and the reason was there's really only so much you can do to shake it up, and then the rules yeah. remain the same. I mean, once they were determined yeah. by Richard Hatch in the first season, yeah, he figured it out. He did. And then mastered. I mean, I would say mastered by by Rob, Boss and Rob was maybe yeah, the Rob guy perf- who, who perfected it. And then it was just this that same game over and over again. I watched uh, Project Runway, the first few seasons of Project Runway, which I think I watched five seasons of it. I quite liked it because of my graphic design background. I thought it was actually a valid way to challenge people and explore aesthetics in the middle of this sort of game show sort of thing too. And what was funny is the first season of Project Runway. Everybody was playing it like, you know, hey, this is a design competition. We've done these before. And there was one woman who played it like Survivor. And it was weird as hell. You'd watch her do things and scheme and whatever. And she ultimately, I don't, she didn't win, but she was one of the f- three finalists, I think, at Fashion Week. And it was, the whole thing was bizarre because you're like, this woman doesn't get it. And even when they brought her back to the like, hey, let's confab about how the season went thing, she was still like, I won this. Blah, blah. And you're like, you're on a different show. Yeah, you're on the wrong. You think you won. <laughs> but what you did is you showed that like th- these strategies don't really work. She she was actually very good at what she did. She was a seamstress. She sewed dresses all the time. And just like on Survivor, oh, my God, on Survivor, you need to make fire on the second season of Project Runway, people arrived with – and the third and the fourth with no hand-sewing skills. So she had great skills and she attributed it to playing the game sort of the hatchway. Huh. <laughs> yeah, the thing that I always thought was kind of interesting to ruminate about with Survivor was what if Richard Hatch had played that first game a completely different way? Would, would everybody still model themselves after that? Well, other that's person? what I'm thinking. You know, yeah. I mean he, he chose to be a conniving guy who, who formed alliances and didn't mind backstabbing. Whereas pretty much everybody else in that first season was just kind of doo doo wandering around the island, failing to make fire, you know, stabbing themselves in the foot with spears and that kind of thing. Having watched, <laughs> having watched more of them, I can tell you that there there did emerge a couple other winner profiles. The uh, the kind of under uh, there was a woman named Vesepia Towery who won one year, and she was the right. under the radar. And and several yeah. other winners have come under that method, which is that they 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 lay low. They are a a, a constant sort of. Uh, they're not much of a threat, or perceived as much of a threat. Right, but they're, they're not always a they're always faithful. They work hard. Right. They keep you know they keep you know, they're not perceived as one of the leaders, so they're not perceived as one of the enemies by the other team. So when they merge together, right, and that was a winning strategy too. And I do wonder if people noticed the hatch thing, and 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 but over the course of like ten or fifteen seasons of Survivor, it turns out there's sort of two or three modes that might work. And that was always the thing that I liked about Survivor. 
that kept me watching for a long time was that it was a complex enough game that I kept trying to think of what, you know, my wife and I would watch an episode and then we would spend 30 minutes talking about the episode, not about like, oh, can you believe what she said? Not that. It was like, what would you do in that situation? What's the right play there? How do you approach that? And I, that there are not very many TV shows that will make me, after every episode, spend half an hour trying to debate what right. we just saw and whether it was good. And that, when, at its best, Survivor was that. It's just that after a while, it became so ridiculously convoluted that there was there was no point anymore. Yeah, and, and again, there's just only so much you can do to shake up that formula, whereas yeah. in The Amazing Race... The formula the is shaken is up almost by design. I mean, there's yeah. nothing you can do to avoid yeah. things being shaken up at every turn when you're dealing with travel and TSA agents and, uh, you know, just the, the vagaries of getting on a bus and finding your way to various places. Or a bad cab driver. Also, also you, you can't pretend to be someone that you're not. So if you're going to say, here's the person I'm going to portray myself as, that will have to break down after about the second episode because you're too tired, you're too stressed out, right. you have not had a chance to breathe. And that's why the, 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 the signature, one, one of the other signature features is the episode number one, they have like the, the full 30-second profile of each team and you have the, the hippie guy, you know, it's like, you know, I teach transcendental yoga and I think that it's because I have that ability to connect with people by episode three. All right, you son of a bitch, non-English speaking idiot, you're going to take us to the temple or else we're going to kick your ass. It's like okay. It's, does <laughs> does anyone recall? Um, like I've, I was thinking as you're talking about this that like uh, it'd be wonderful if there were shows that were um, <clears throat> had the crunchy earthy crunchy thing of of showing how communities work together. And I realize there are so shows like that. I watched the one several years ago. I can't find the name of it. It's it was uh, I, it might have been PBS, but it was it was sort of high minded as people were living as if they were in a colony. And they had to produce a return by the end of the year, and some oh, yeah, people yeah. were sort of. There have been a few, a few of those like eighteen, eighteen hundred house, and this was like the sixteen hundred somethings yeah, because right. there was, and they had to negotiate with local first peoples, and then at some point at the end of the show, at the end of the show, the uh, you know the the colonial governor or whoever it was comes over the co- no, it was a, it was like a company like the uh, like a trading company organization. And they came over and they said we're revoking your charter because you guys didn't do well enough. Uh, right, Front- there's Fr- frontier house, colonial house, and and. Uh, uh, manor house, I think. Which one was this? Wasn't a house, so this they were actually living in uh, sort of a village. But whatever it was, oh, it was. Right. I thought that actually came closest to saying like nobody it wasn't an individual competition. And there, I know that there's been these in the UK and Europe as well. Is is that you have to work that's together? That's the social experiment show, yes, which is a little bit right. different. <laughs> yes. There's not elimination. It's almost like it's, a documentary, a, 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 a fake. <laughs> it's not a fake documentary. It's like a documentary reality experiment thing. Exactly. It's like a nonfiction, but it's it's set up and yeah, yeah, it's very strange. I, I um it's funny when you mentioned Project Runway that um that uh my wife watched Project Runway for a while and she was, I think like you, frustrated by the fact that some people really wanted to play it like Survivor and or or, or play it worse, play it like the, the like uh the real world. And yeah. and and I believe that show changed producers and they actually changed it from a a company that specialized in competition programs to a producer that specialized in, you know, reality TV that's right. experiences at which point my wife said, I'm never going to watch that show again because <laughs> that, they decided it happened. wasn't about the competition. It was about people being bitchy and I'm not interested. Honestly, I'm just not interested in, in that kind of show. I, I want to see people not pretending to be archetypes, uh, but, but be fairly real or, you know, TV version of their their real self, but people doing things, trying to outwit people or trying to show off their talent and be forced to be creative or put in extreme situations like the Amazing Race. These things 
these things kind of interest me and and it, it it's you know jeopardy they don't starve you and and uh, make you make fire but you know <laughs> it's, they it's not more... give you access to the full craft services table which as far as i'm true. concerned is about the same so it's, it's gentler true. slightly but but still in the end you know it, it it's a competition it's a brutal but it's a brutal it's brutal oh but it's it's it was so Alex brutal has a blow mind. dart gun they don't tell you that and he shoots a <laughs> random contestant with yeah. a barbiturate oh uh, and oh, let me tell you that chit, that chit chat where you're standing on your marks while That's they do torture. the credits at the end. That is is just as torturous as one might imagine. It's just it is so awkward. Well, I just beat you two people, and. That's great. Hey, Alex, how's that? Um, I don't know your old mustache. Yeah. Like, what's how's going that bunion? On? <laughs> you keep it in a jar in your medicine cabinet, or what? <laughs> yeah, it's a preserve. Also, oh, also, if you had one, you're going to be using it to get chemotherapy for your child. Oh, that's hey, I, I, is that a, is that that's a Red Sox like, yeah. real pill? Happy cock. Are like the credits that. over yet? <laughs> but the you know, the thing I say, it is a brutal illumination competition. They don't they don't market or package Jeopardy that way. And it doesn't look that way, of course, from the outside because people come and go, but you're rooting for, you know, you're like, oh, oh, I wish that person won. Oh, there's a champion. And they come back and some people win for multiple days and some win once, but someone always wins. Although technically, by the way, I didn't realize this. You can have a game in which everyone loses, which I did not know. Everybody's under zero. Everyone is, you have to have at least, you have to have at least $1 to go to Final Jeopardy or you're out before Final Jeopardy. So it is possible. I don't think this has ever happened that someone has won before Final Jeopardy and could go and do whatever they wanted to do. But if all <laughs> if in Final Jeopardy all the contestants have the same final dollar amount after the question's over, they are all champions. Two or three can tie for first place. Second place they do, you know, who had the most money at certain points and someone's second and someone's third. But you can tie for first. And if you have zero dollars and all three contestants zero dollars, we'll be back tomorrow with a whole new slate of contestants. Yeah, you guys nice. stink. Get out. Very, very rare, stick. which is why they give you betting advice so you don't wind up with zero dollars. So, Glenn, you um, are a celebrity to us, but I wanted to say one of the <sighs> things, the other genre, I, as a kid, I watched a lot of game shows, and I imagine that you guys did too. I mean, that we, we brought up High Rollers, yeah. which is not a not a favorite of mine, and there was like, you know, Tic-Tac-Doe with the dragon. Oh, and yeah. What was the... Yeah, it was the is that the Pictionary one? Was that Tic Tac Toe? No, Tic Tac Toe was exactly what it sounds like. It was Tic Tac Toe with, with the dragons and the bonus. Uh, win draw. loser, win loser draw with Bert Convy. Draw. Yeah, yeah. Joker's uh, Wild. Joker's oh with Jack Barry, right? Uh, Joker, Joker, Elizabethan underwear. My favorite was always the ones with the most uh, obnoxiously garish set pieces. Yes. When I was a kid, like there was one, and and I, I've I always lay this out whenever we're talking about game shows with somebody, and nobody ever remembers it, but. Uh, it was a show where I don't even remember how the main round went, but the bonus round had all these plywood cutouts of various monsters. The show, oh, I don't remember it was that. called The Gauntlet of Gauntlet. Villains. Gauntlet, right. I don't yep. remember And no, the show, the show was called, and this is probably the, the reason nobody remembers it is because this is probably the dumbest name in the history of television. It was called Whew. I am unaware of this show. Wow. W-H-E-W. I mean, how could you come up with a worse name than that? Holy cow. This is a great show. It's called Dude, did, did you just burp? No, no. It's called. This is a very complicated. I'm reading the like Wikipedia entry. This is I. I this is wow. my prime game time viewing period. It was on from April of '79 to May of 1980. I'm yeah, sure that I was watched. when I watched. Yeah. Oh yeah. Wow. So so right. I mean, that was that that was at a time when after the morning shows went off the air, there was like three solid hours of game shows. And your kid home sick or over the summer? The prices. The Price is Right. I mean, I watched The Price is Right. And it was yeah. on for an hour. I oh, would yeah, just I watch that. that. I cannot imagine how many hours I spent watching 
Bob Barker and Barker's Beauties give a new car, right? I mean, <laughs> oh my God. The amount of time lost watching people bid retail prices on products I didn't understand. <laughs> well, and this is probably why game shows are kind of a dying breed because nowadays, I mean, for me, the reason that I got into game shows in the first place was when you were a kid, sick at home or just, you know, shirking your duties. Sure. Um, or summertime. You, you know. know, your TV options were totally limited. You had the block oh, of man. cartoons in the morning. Yep. And then you had this massive yawning gulf between the b- between that and the next block of cartoons in the afternoon. Yeah, and uh, and so there were the game shows right after that, and then there was soap uh, like operas, a soap operas, and like reruns of F Troop. Oh yeah, and oh man, and dialing for dollars, man. And you kind of oh. learned pretty quickly as a kid, you know, okay, the cartoons are over. I can either you know sit here in my bed and pretend to be sick for a little while longer. Or I can see what this thing is that's coming on. And hey, look at all these flashing light bulbs. And oh, wow, that guy has some pretty big hair. Let's see what this is about. And and uh, and nowadays, I mean, you, you're, you're sick at home and you've got probably a week's worth of shows on your TiVo. Every TV show ever made. Right. Yeah, at your finger. I mean, you've on got demand. streaming stuff at your fingertips. Yeah. You could, if you wanted to, you could probably go back and find not Jeopardy, but some other game show episodes online to watch. Not not only that, but also the, this these there's so many formats of TV that were staples for generations, but now they're just so played out. You don't. It's it's amazing that uh, it, it's amazing that Saturday Night Live still does game show parodies, not knowing that there is probably no one underneath the age of sixty <laughs> for whom that is like current and relative television. There's there's uh, there's Jeopardy for, and that's still like sort of a really old trending show. It's amazing that The Price is Right stayed on the air after Bob Barker oh, left because yeah. he thought that they're gonna they're gonna bury that show. With them, I really think that the reality shows of generations past were these game shows. That this was this was the opportunity to see normal people oh, who are absolutely. not trained, polished people. And the only way that you know, thirty years ago they could conceive of putting like an ordinary person on the air was to let's have them try to like throw ping pong balls at their husband who is wearing a duck costume. Right. Or you'd get the um, the combination with well, we'll make them interesting by putting them on the twenty five thousand dollar pyramid with a celebrity, <laughs> and then the celebrity will be able to interact with them and 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 uh and make it interesting and i right. wanted to bring this up before before we we finish which is the the genre of game show that i loved and that i actually appreciate even more now as an adult and and there have been a few attempts i uh, to bring this back in some more reality-based format but i always loved the the celebrity panel uh shows and and yes. for me the zenith yeah. is match game yeah, because than that. because although there were contestants, that that was six celebrities who often knew each other and sometimes I, I think knew each other quite well and were extremely and, drunk. They were drunk. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so Nipsey Russell and, and, and Charles Nelson Riley and and Fanny Flag and, and Brett Summers. We have no and, idea what these oh. people did, but now that they're, they're that was you great. know they're celebrities by virtue of the fact they're on. The- Actually, I have a story about that. Oh, when Charles Nelson Riley was on the X Files. I, I I practically had an attack. I was like, <gasps> it's and, and and it's like what? It's like what do I know him from? Nothing except the match game, and yet I was very excited. That that's that was incredible for me though, because you know Charles Nelson Riley, you only know that he's a celebrity because he's called a celebrity on game shows. But then like you read a little bit about him, and you and you realize that in the '60s he originated roles in three of the most incredible Broadway musicals that defined oh, the yeah. 20th oh, century. Yeah. Fantastic he was actor, a monster star, right? Yeah. 
the people the people who we were, were celebrities that we didn't know why they were celebrities they were all New York stars they were or London stars and when it, you know and you couldn't see you knew nothing about theater unless you went there but this is true and Paul Lind for I mean besides he was in movies but also he was a terrific uh, stage performer and so it was yep. presented on TV he's a celebrity it's like what's he celebrated for well you wouldn't know don't worry about it <laughs> And at least for me, those those two guys, Paul Lind and Charles Nelson Riley, were really my first introduction to what it means via TV to be unbelievably flamingly gay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were, we called it flamboyant back then. And and I mean that's really the normalization of gay people to me began with Charles Nelson Riley's little hat and his scarf. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I I think that I, I would love to read a, a serious article about that where in uh, in decades in which if you were gay you the last thing you would want to know want is for anybody to know about it because you would not be employed you would be attacked in the streets that's how bad things were in the seventies and yet entertainment said it's okay for Paul Lynn to be that flaming it's okay <laughs> for Charles Nelson Riley to be what was the rule that said that so long as you are as long as you have a cocktail glass in your hand and an ask and a scarf around your neck. <laughs> it's it's okay. Oh you're my. a harmless gay person. You're 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 cl- long as you're drunk. I suspect they thought, and they were probably right, that most of Middle America would wouldn't see that it. and think, "Oh, he's quirky." You know, they wouldn't recognize it. <laughs> as is, being... is Charles Nelson Riley married married to Brett Summers? Liberace is so dedicated to his music. <laughs> I assume that Charles and Brett are married. They always talk, and they're a little catty toward each other. But they I seem like they've married. got something happening. They're a nice married couple. What was yeah. Brett Summers known? I have no idea what she was known for. She was oh, married she was, to Jack uh, Klugman. That's the only thing I Mac remember. Married to Jack Klugman. She, she was, was on the young couple. Yeah, she was a. Oh, that's right. Uh, sing, well, she was a um uh serious. Oh, she was a dramatic performer. She was again right. an actress, it's, a stage actress. It's Wikipedia talking there, isn't it, Glenn? Yeah. But she was. She was. She played <laughs> yes, Oscar's ex-wife Blanche on the Young Couple. Uh, I think. Right. I remember Richard Dawson from from Match Game. Too, and Nipsey Russell, of course, who would Nipsey have his strange Russell. poets. Yeah, Richard like... was the one they would always go to for the bonus game because he was the one who had his head screwed on straight. Yeah, he actually wasn't as drunk as, or he could hold his <laughs> liquor better. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> yeah, he British, was English. So, yeah, yeah, he could. I too was a huge fan of the panel shows, largely because of oh, the match yeah. game. And for years match and game. years, Dean Rayburn. I agreed with you that that was the, the zenith of the panel man. show. And then, uh, then I had a daughter in 2003, my first child, and uh, she was not an easy sleeper. And uh, so for the first couple of weeks of her existence, she had to be held for most of the night. And you could set her down yes. for maybe 30 seconds before the horrible screaming would yeah. start oh, to yeah. bring the plaster off of the walls. Good times. So, yes, a good deal of that <laughs> time times. was spent. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was spent with me sitting on the couch with my, my infant daughter tucked in my arm. And, I mean, there were probably quite a few things that I would rather be watching. But you never know, you know, if you're watching, uh, you know, Terminator on uh, Cinemax or something – that uh, you know, there's going to be a loud explosion and the child wakes up and that's pretty much game over right there. So I found late into the night the, the um, game show network's black and white overnight, which they were doing at the time, and maybe they still do, where they would show basically 50s game shows, all black and white, and it was usually to tell the truth, um, what's my line, what's I've my got line, a right. secret. Yeah. yeah. And uh and and I figured those, you know, it was basically just people talking and kept it at a fairly low volume. It was more or less like being in the womb at uh, <laughs> at Bill Cullen's house. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Alan Ludden and Bill Cullen will help you. Yeah. But the thing that struck me about those panel shows is that the panelists on those shows were brilliantly witty. I yeah. mean, they weren't just the kind of, you know, sort of 
humorous gutter wit that uh, that Brett Summers would throw out. I mean, they were just what? sharp Those as are pens. fighting words. Damn Don't you. Don't you say a word against Brett Summers. <laughs> I think she would be happy to be uh, yeah. to be referred to as a gutter wit. That's yeah, actually, that's true. <laughs> it seems right up her alley. That is, that but is yeah, like Bill Cullen, I fell madly in love with Bill Cullen during uh, during those couple of weeks. Although some of that, I was, it was a very emotional period, uh, yeah, <laughs> and there was not a whole lot of sleep. There's a lot of hormones going on there. <laughs> but oh uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, Bill Cullen, Dorothy Kilgallen, um, who I guess died mysteriously some years later under mysterious circumstances. Um, Bennett Cerf, Betsy Palmer, who was later on uh, Friday the Thirteenth. And you find out like what they're what the, why they're famous, right? And even Hugh Hefner a couple of times makes an appearance. So, well, this one is a publisher of a newspaper. Uh, this one like was not 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 a Pulitzer Prize winner, but he was a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize for his third book of poetry, right? But yeah, I mean, I became very very sort of weirdly nostalgic for a time that I never knew when <laughs> when that kind of thing would play on television. I mean, they were saying th- these snappy rejoinders were smart, and they were based in some kind of. You know, it, it wasn't just boobs or whoopee or, you know, whatever. It was it was just a bunch of intelligent people having a conversation. And maybe some of that's coming back now via podcasting. Podcasting. There you go. We are the new match game. We are the new. We That's it. That's right. it. We have our solution. Right there. I, no, but you're I right. Feel I feel like I, I'm still on the Nipsey Russell side of the fence there. But you guys are pretty smart. <laughs> I, I think I, I think uh, I think you got something there, Steve, that this is uh, I, I wish that 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 kind of thing would come back where it was there's a premise you can hang on and there's some entertainment and there's a you know a reason for them to be there but the reality is they're there because they're interesting people who are going to say and do interesting things and you watch because of the of the people you watch because of the guests and the format is just kind of there to move the show along and uh, there's something to be said for that and I would love to see I don't know what the modern equivalent of that is maybe it is a podcast Maybe it's something like wait. I mean, wait, wait. Don't tell me. On P- on NPR is a little bit like that in the sense that the you know the people are interesting, but it's still you know a little too much game show and not enough conversation. So I don't know. It's true. I will tell you one final thought if you like. Oh sure, Glenn. Please. Am I still here? Oh, <laughs> answer in, in the form of a question. What is? I'll take Willie Tyler and Lester for the block. The emphasis is about circle takes a square about money. Uh, you know that you're looking at money. You're always making money. You're wagering, whatever. The um, it, the game goes too fast and is you're too uh, wrapped up in it. I mean, you watch the game, you see how fast it goes. It, the average is, uh, according to one of the sources I read, is 12 seconds from question to question in Jeopardy. And so you're in if you're playing it well, which I did my first two games, I believe I. Uh, you're in a fugue state. You know, you're doing everything you can to manipulate this buzzer to watch. You're listening to Alex. You're reading clues. Your brain is working. There's a display you can't see up into the left of the board that has all three contestants' money in the order that you're standing left to right, the current balance. So in the first game I played, in the first part before commercial, I don't know, it's five minutes long. You go through an average of about 15 clues in that period. I had $6,400 dollars. One of the other people I think had zero and wanted negative 200. I had no idea. I knew I was answering stuff. I knew they weren't or were, but it was just like, boom, okay, what just happened there? So <laughs> the money is symbolic in a way that, you know, it's often funny. Like when you're dealing with money, but you can't think about it as money, it's a, it, it, it doesn't make any sense as money. You're not just buying and selling goods. It's points. And then at the end, they're like, okay, uh, you get – so this is not a well-known – it's not a secret, but uh, Jeopardy Awards – the uh, winner or winners, if there are multiple champions, gets the cash amount that's on their screen at the end of Final Jeopardy. The second place finisher 
gets $2,000, and the third-place finisher gets $1,000. And you get that regardless of whether you've won previous games. You're and, always paid and a lifetime out. supply of turtle wax. <laughs> I, I, I fear oh, the boxes that, of a leave that are going to show up in my house soon. So the <laughs> but uh, but so while you're playing the game, so you know you're going to win. So you know your expenses. You have to pay all your own expenses to get there, um, and you know your expenses will be covered unless you book some crazy hotel, whatever. So you know you're not going to come out behind on on dollars. But still, you can't. You're not. There's no time to think about money. You need to do something numeric. And at the end of it, it's like. I literally had no idea how much I'd won on these two programs until they're like, here's a piece of paper. You sign and say, this is what you won. And I look at it. I'm like, oh, okay. So it's great. I'm not trying to be funny about it. It's really nice to win some money, uh, substantial money for playing a game for, for, for two 20-minute <laughs> chunks so far. Uh, but, you know, it's still – it's not um, – it's – from the outside, it looks like money is how the game runs. And from the inside, there's no – there's just no time for that. So at at, uh, at Macworld Expo for a few years, there was an onstage game show that I was on, and uh, even though no money changed hands in that in that thing, and it was just for fun, I've got to say the 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 audience starts to applaud and the lights go up, and you're being asked questions and to solve problems and do you know tricks with the computer and answer trivia questions. And I know exactly what you're saying. It, it is like a fugue state. It's just like you, you, it, you're, you're out of your body. You don't know what's happened, and then it's over. And you're like, "What? Wait, what happened? <laughs> like, what, what just went and, on and, here?" And that was just. And a- Andy, you were on those game shows too, right? I mean, I don't know if you had the yeah, same experience, but it was like I. It was. It's adrenaline rush, and other part of my brain kicks in, and I don't even know what happened. It was different for me because at, with each one of those questions, I had one of t- I wanted to meet one of two goals: either a get the right answer, or b say something be that funny. was or do, yeah. do something do something that would be funny and entertain people. And so when I I, I distinctly remember this is why I, I don't think I, I'd be one of these people who would not do well on Jeopardy. I don't mean that I'd lose; I mean that they wouldn't be able to use the tape. Because the uh, Chris Chris Breen said Chris Breen wrote the last one that that I was on, and the, the the final Jeopardy question was that you had to like it, it was Chris's birthday, and using the computer in front of using the MacBook in front of you that I've set up for you, you have to wish me a happy birthday, but you can't use email, you can't use this, you can't use that, and the solution he was looking for was that there is if you look into a, the address book, there is an entry for Chris Breen, there is actually an SMS number, and you could use the seldom used like SMS feature. Send him a text message. Yes, by iChat, which I did. Exactly, that, that was good. But uh, see, but I, I, te- I technically beat the other. Be, my team technically beat everybody else because I instantly thought, oh, he did the uh, he the the way that he structured the question. It's okay for me to just simply go into text edit, type the phrase "Happy Birthday, Chris," <laughs> highlight it, put the <laughs> microphone next to the speaker, then select "Speak Text." Yeah. And then when Chris like was like, oh well, that's not what I was looking for. I'm sorry, that's not a correct answer. I know that I I could have continued to work on it, but I thought it would be funnier just to pretend that I was upset that you weren't accepting. <laughs> my answer yes and that's and that's why that and your um inability to control your blush response are the reasons you have not been on jeopardy that's right <laughs> if you cannot control you cannot at will produce if, a blush if, if you pass the void yeah. camp test however he can soil himself at will <laughs> well you that's why you bring the change of clothes that's wheel of fortune i'm afraid <laughs> I was I was amazed during like my the uh, like when I, I we went to a ballroom in like in the Park Square building in in Boston and like 200 people got winnowed down to maybe 11 who passed the test who got to play the the fake game on camera and 
part of it, like I, I was aware that, you know, every single at this point, everything that you're doing is going to be observed by the producers, including producers who aren't actually inside that room. So the audition pr- process is on right now. And so they went, everyone, please, like in, in turn, please stand up and say who you are and why you'd like to be on Jeopardy. And so everyone's like, hi, I'm, 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 I'm Joyce. I'm a, I work in I, I work for Raytheon and I'm an engineer and I'm just a big fan of the show. This one guy, I will never forget him because <laughs> he stands up angry <laughs> and says my name is josh i'm a librarian for harvard and i've passed the exam 11 times <laughs> and have never been selected <laughs> and you can tell that wasn't like oh ha, isn't this a cool it's like you bastards and never you you bring my butt out here you keep <laughs> raising my hopes but i'm sure that if i if i act angry and belligerent in front of an audience of 10 you'll pick me to be in front of a million people and i'm like okay it's got i now, oh. now i only have to beat 10 people instead of 11 people <laughs> In my in my audition in Seattle, they say they this is when they're winnowing through staff. So there's just 21 of us, and we went groups of three and so forth. The very last person that they talked to at the very last in the last simulated game before they said, "Okay, thanks, we'll call you if we call you," uh, was a guy who I swear to God he was a drifter. He tests well, but the guy was like, he always. I've been watching him through the thing. He looked a little shady. I was getting a little bit of the sort of sling bait from parts unknown. Here's the overpass. <laughs> Our first contestant. He's he's a drifter who lives under an overpass it's so bill i i understand you once peed on an electric fence <laughs> that's right i'm a gnome rancher alex uh, i uh, ranch gnomes also little fairies uh also uh, that's a handsome snake you've got wrapped around your left antenna stalk there alex uh, it wasn't this guy was a little lower key but i could tell they would placed him last because they knew everyone was going to leave the room and they were like so what will you do if you they don't ask you about money on the, this is actually when they interview when alex interviews you he never asks you about money the contestant coordinators ask you because they'd like to know people have an interesting idea of what they're going to do and it's sort of how to draw you out and see what you say when you're confronted with the notion of winning filthy lucre and everything and so they asked this guy everyone else been charming they're massage therapists and students and IT people and people with a different kind of IT background and then also people involved in IT and computer programmers <laughs> and oh is there a trend and then there's this guy it's like so what do you do it's like oh, I've been unemployed can't get a job it's like really so what do you do with the money uh, probably nothing you know it's like what do you do well, I really watch TV watch Jeopardy and you're like oh my god and so he tests well clearly but yeah the audition process necessary to filter a few people out on that end of the spectrum and you they missed they got i know I, well <laughs> wow i didn't i didn't tell any stories about Werner herzog so i got through the screening process thank god very <laughs> smart stay away from the german well, tell, I, I, well we, we, can't, we can't let you go without talking about the buzzer Every time you read about oh, like, tips on Jeopardy, it's like buzzer. here's how to use the buzzer. You're not going to you have to you have to you can't fool the buzzer. This is the buzzer is the buzzer is the key to so right. I mean you have to have actual knowledge. But as I've said, and as the contestants coordinators say this, the books written about it say it. I have now witnessed it in person. Typically, from in a good round, two or three people on stage know every answer. That's and so. If, so it all becomes reflex. And I got some pretty good buzzer timing at points. You get into a rhythm. There was a blind contestant on Jeopardy a few years ago. He didn't get any special cues. <clears throat> he just knew when to buzz in. The deal is Jeopardy is – it's not unique among quiz shows. But because 
Um, they talked about it actually when they were describing the show uh, at some point while I was there. They said it would be really – or Johnny Gilbert was telling the audience. He's saying it would be really difficult for people at home if Alex didn't get through the question, if he didn't read the clue and someone buzzed in. The people up on stage, like these people, they could buzz in the thirst, the question would flash up and they could buzz in in a tenth of a second. Now, would that be interesting at home? No. So for good television, they structure the show. Alex has to and – it, and it adds to that tension too. Alex must completely finish reading the question and then there is a person in my case or in our case – it's a guy named Matt. Matt, one of the writers, sitting there. He's got his finger on top of a button. The instant Alex finishes speaking, Matt watches him, makes sure last syllable, and Matt hits the button. It's a manual process. On both sides of the big display, uh, lights light up on both sides. Huge lights light up. And lights light up on your podium in front of you, indicating it is acceptable. The lockout is off. And you can ring in. If you ring in before the lockout is off, you're delayed by, I think it's like two-tenths of a second or one-tenth of a second. It's very brief. The system has sub-thousand seconds response time, so you can actually be one-thousandth of a second faster than someone else, and that's purposely designed that way. And if you play the game correctly, and sometimes I did, you're listening for Alex, you're not looking for the lights, and you hear him go, and you bring, and your lights go up, and the lights light up in front of you, and you know that you can answer, and boom. And sometimes, as on a famous episode of Star Trek, you don't see the lights. You don't know if there's three lights or four lights. It's hard to know. What you're seeing, all you know is you hear Alex's voice and you ring in and deliver the answer. And then you get on a roll where you've got the timing of sort of like he's about to wrap up and now I press and And you throw off everybody else. When you get into a roll, it really shakes the other competitors in a way that almost none of the other because they keep trying to ring in and they can't and they can't and they can't. They get rattled. And I saw a little bit of that with some very strong people I was playing against. Um, so the buzzer is, it's a nice solid metal thing. It actually reminds me a bit of uh, almost like a flash, like a, one of those LED flashlights you'd carry around, like a tactical flashlight practically. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's got good action. It's got good action. <laughs> what Ken Jennings said in his book, by the way, is they didn't used to do as much rehearsal before uh, he started winning a lot. And somewhere in the middle of his run, they're like, okay, we got to rethink this. And he, they had some big hiatuses while he was winning his 74 shows. So he'd come out, he'd come back a couple weeks, and then they had like a tournament, they had some other stuff. So there was actually a big break during, uh, in a couple places. He comes back and they changed out and were starting to swap the people who did the lockout release button among the writing staff. So he couldn't predict who, you know, who was going to do it. And they were also a little more erratic. Well, the timing wasn't as perfect. And they also started giving contestants much more rehearsal time, which I think reduces the odds that anyone will be a multiple-day champion because the more rehearsal time you have, the more it evens the process, the less nerves there are. And I think when you look back through the J Archive site, it shows how many times people were champions. And you can see that since the Jennings days, there's very few runs of multiple shows of more than you know a, a couple or three or four or whatever. There's very few five or more time winners. So hmm. clearly that helped too. That seems sort of odd to me because certainly – when he was on his run, they drew a lot of viewers waiting to see if he was going to go down that day. Yeah, it's true. The viewership went up something like almost 25% during his run. And I mean, the show now still has over 9 million like daily viewers and like 25 million unique viewers over a week. So it still has plenty of viewers, but it was getting, I think it might've been twice that back when he, his run was going on. It's, the, it's declined quite a bit, but I think there's a bit, it's like there's a fine line between Watching someone walk across a tightrope several times going, man, they didn't follow those times and like, oh, now it's time for Ken to walk across the tightrope again. <laughs> OK. And now this other guy is walking across the tightrope again and again and again and again. So I think there's a, there's a tension between them wanting to not let people become so successful that they dominate the show, which is what happened with Ken. He's the nicest guy. I've met him. He lives in Seattle. I've met him. Of course him. you he have. Me a little advice Why don't you show. have? 
I'm sorry. I called him up. I said, you know, hey, I'd love to, you know, if you don't mind. And apparently um, he gets emails and stuff from people. But there's not that. I mean, there's hundreds of people here going the show, but not that many of them seek him out. And I did and uh, had a very nice coffee with him. Very lovely fella, just as self-facing as you'd hope. He's changed his life so he can write full time. He does done very well with some books. and He's got columns and he's quite amusing on Twitter. Let's say he's very, he's very he's funny, dry guy, and a uh, family man. And um, but uh, you know he's low key. He's actually like a very low key guy. He's just very his. It, it just turns out that all of his abilities are perfectly aligned with playing Jeopardy. Like that is <laughs> that is the thing that he is. He was best born at in to life. play, baby. It's weird, but like his reflexes, his knowledge base. He's not crazily trivial. He doesn't talk about trivia all the time. He just was the right person for that game. Now here's one other piece of information though. You can never, once you've been a contestant, unless you're invited back for an invitational, like a championship, you can never play a game of Jeopardy again. But the show is called Jeopardy with Alex Trebek. If if and when Alex retires, this is the 29th season. He's had a couple of heart attacks. He looked fabulous. Oh, my God. Alex Trebek. God, does he look good. Man. <laughs> holy cow. He looks good up close, too. Even in high def, when you're there with him, he looks good up close. Does he smell like strawberries? I bet he smells like strawberries. He's just, his skin, he just, you, he's, oh, my wow. gosh, Alex. It's pretty neat. Something special. Love between a contestant and Alex is forbidden love. Yeah. <laughs> but now you're, you know, once, once your run ends, you will have graduated. And, and who knows? All bets are off. Literally. Once you're defeated. Uh, which inevitably will, after 70 wins, you'll be defeated. At some point, like at some point I will be defeated. But as of this moment. You are reigning. Taping airs, I am the reigning champion. So I get to preserve this moment at Amber in time. Thank you very much. That's as why of- we are recording this podcast. So, Glenn, congratulations on your two victories. Good Thank luck you with much. your rest of your Jeopardy run, which has already I'll been recorded, it. but is a secret. I'm going to take that with me when I go back in, back in, in time back and play in time. the game. Excellent. Uh, and thanks for doing this. I, I appreciate this. I'm glad we could put this in the time capsule, uh, you know, quickly uh, as soon as you, you got back from your Jeopardy experience so that um, it'll be frozen in amber along with your Jeopardy experience and thawed back out <laughs> when uh, people listen to this. So thank so you very, thank much. You very much. much. And it was great to, to hear your, your story. Um, and also joining me tonight uh, with some other uh, nice game show moments and also wackiness. Uh, Steve Lutz, thank you very much for being here. It was good to have you back on. It's been a little while. Oh, I'm sorry, Jason. The real Steve Lutz was, in fact, Andy Anatko. Oh, sorry. But thanks But thanks for playing. Sorry. We'll send you a copy of the home game. Thank sorry. you, the home game. I, I, I look forward to that. And Andy Anatko, thank you very much. Uh, I think we can agree that you would be more likely to use Andy Notko than your wife. However, that would not be uh, incidental, I think I'm correct in saying, to uh, to the identity of Andy Notko. So I think that's $20 more. And to Dorothy Kilgallen. I'd like to phone a friend. <laughs> you have no friends. <laughs> Damn. What is a friend? That's... No, I'm really asking. I'm not answering the form of a question. What is that? I need a, I need a literal lifeline here. I need a literal. Until our, our next episode of The Incomparable and until our next game show episode, because we do those every now and then, I think, and those are fun. And Glenn got lots of ideas when he was on Jeopardy for our I next one. I ideas. So we'll do that, and that'll be music, and then I can be the host of the... I can be Alex Trebek. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Go watch Jeopardy and see how Glenn does uh, on the next episode, please. Until then, though, this is Jason Snell signing off for The Incomparable. Thanks for listening, and have your pets spayed or neutered.